Welcome to another episode of Global U Talks, where college-age entrepreneurs travel the world and interview experts in technology, entrepreneurship, and the kingdom way of life. Okay, so let's pray. God, it's just uh, astounding to us how you weave all the different threads of your world into one beautiful thing. We've got Sophie, who's been on a different side of the world in a completely different culture from the rest of us who are here in the States and have been for a while. She's knitted together with these guys because of her history with them and they're knitted together with her. We thank you, Lord, for this fabric. I pray, God, that you'd help us today as we kind of rub against each other with this Zoom call and Facebook call. As we interact with each other, we pray, God, that you would cause us to, pieces of us to, to sort of uh, catch on with the other. And uh, thank you, Lord, for how you do this, how you use this, how you use your body. So Holy Spirit, we invite you in, direct things as you would have them go. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Great. Sophie. <laughs> I love Sophie. Everybody loves Sophie. She's a very easy to love person, very bright and bubbly, and she's doing amazing things. She's like this uh, mighty little thing um, going around the world and accomplishing amazing stuff. Very creative, has a has an approach that we've never seen anywhere else and, and it's really working and it's ministering deeply to, to the least of these. So I really appreciate Sophie. I think of her as a hero. She's a fraction of my age and she's done so much. So anyway, it's always good to see you, Sophie. And so I, what I think what we'll do here is just, you know, as we were just talking with Jacob, we'll kind of interview you a little bit, ask you some questions about what's going on with, with your life now, what has been going on with your life since you left the group. You guys, you guys parted ways in Spain, right? So probably around mm -hmm. November-ish? Yeah, yeah, end of November. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we'll talk for 20 minutes. We'll do a little Q&A, and then, and then you can take questions from your pals, okay. all your buddies. <laughs> so just to catch everybody up, why don't you let the folks know where you were before coming back to the States. Yeah, let's just start with that. Okay, sure. So since, let's see, end of January, I moved to Bangladesh and I was working on a project there with the UN, just kind of working as a consultant with a team of researchers, anthropologists, and artists over there. So I, yeah, I was working on that project um, the project is going well through the end of April, but I had to leave a little bit early because of the crisis and everything going on. At the time that I left, it was a little bit earlier, I guess, than other UN workers. So I felt kind of weird leaving at that time. It was really premature, I felt. But then within a matter of you know 12 hours, flights were being canceled. People were not able to leave people weren't out, allowed to, you know, go outside and stuff. And so I got, I was actually very, very fortunate to get out when I did. But I was in Cox's Bazaar, which is a small town in southern Bangladesh, about an hour long flight from Dhaka. And it's about two hours outside of the refugee camp for, so I work with the Rohingya refugees. And so I develop 
picture-based learning materials. And so this recent project I've been working on was creating a Rohingya culture book. And so basically what I've been doing is getting a team in the field. We've been going around and collecting all this research and um, collecting reference photos and then working with artists and basically putting together a book that's basically just putting the Rohingya culture in in cartoon form and it's never been done before. We're trying to recreate what their raw culture is, you know, before they came to the refugee camps because like so much influence has happened even just since the influx three years ago. And so trying to gather this research and information and create basically just like a cartoon, like Where's Waldo, Richard Scarry's version of what we believe their culture represents and is in cartoon form. So that was the actual project, but I had to leave a little bit early because of the situation. I'm continuing to work remotely and yeah. Yeah, that's good. So when you were, when you were there, you were working more of as a, as a consultant or were you, were you actually interacting with the people? Cause you love these people. I know you've got a pretty long history of, of working with the Rohini people and being in and amongst their culture and getting to know them. Many of the individuals in the camps, you know, were you able to, while you were there as a consultant, were you able to renew some of those ties? And did you feel that you were still sort of hands-on or were you more distant in terms of the ministry that you were doing while you were, while you were there with the UN? Right. Yeah. So I, I think I was very, very fortunate with the team that I was placed for the UN. For starters, I, without this job as a consultant for the UN, I wouldn't even be able to enter the refugee camps, let alone even maybe get a visa. And so I was very, very, like the timing could not have been perfect to have been hired um, to do this project because there's no way I would have been able to get into the camps. They've been a lot stricter on really? who can and cannot enter. And so initially, you know, two years ago, I was posing as a volunteer for an organization and, and I did work and stuff and connect with the families in that way, but I wouldn't be able to do that now. So oh. having the UN ID card was like, that's, that's how I got in. And then also my team is, was incredibly flexible. My manager is very, they, they just gave me a lot of freedom. So they just, because I'm a deliverables based consultant, they say, okay, you just, you know, do whatever you need to do. Just make sure you get us the deliverables. So part of my project obviously was just conducting research within the Rohingya culture. So I would go around to the families that I was the most comfortable with and, and I could, it was, it was kind of nice to have an agenda of, of being like, being able to reconnect with them and then share with them my project and then see how they can help. So that was actually really cool. And then seeing how excited people were about like sharing about their culture and what life was like and just all these different memories that would come up and emotions. And it was really cool to, to be part of that process. And another thing was really cool is that I was able to get one of my friends. He's, you know, extremely, extremely intelligent, very well educated, taught himself. He's a Rohingya refugee but I'm, I was able to get him a, a job with the project that I'm working on. So now he's actually part of the team and he gets great. a salary and stuff. So that was, that was really great. Um, and I, I obviously would never be in a position to, to pay him or hire him. So having the right. opportunity of working as a consultant has been really great. So I'm trying to use that to open up. 
opportunity for, for my friends. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the last time we talked, we, we chatted about this idea that by being an outside consultant, you have the uh, authority of the UN without many of the restrictions that a UN employee would have. So you're an independent contractor and you're carrying around the UN badge, but they're like, well, you know, you're not one of our employees. So we just, we're interested in your, in, in the thing that you create at the end. And that's, that's very atypical in my experience of working within an organization. You know, you, you get a lot more freedom when you're associated with them, but at a, at that you know, at something of a distance. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really good principle for entrepreneurs in general, whatever your field, if you can, if you can identify, if you can identify partners who can sort of provide you some cover, but at the Mm -hmm. same time, not, not give you too many, too many restrictions. Um, And this is obviously a God breathe thing because they came to you. Did they not the UN? Didn't they find you initially? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I would never approach them. I was like, oh no, I would never do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, so that was really kind of something that, that God just provided to you. Yeah. That's, that's cool. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about the virus and some of the things that happened when, when you learned that the virus existed and it became evident to you that you had to go. So how, what... We're, we're, so you're working with the UN and you're or on your own, but you've got their covering and you're in the, in the refugee camps and all that. And you learn about this virus as the mm-hmm. people in the camps are learning about the virus. Or did you have an early sense of it because of the UN uh, oversight or how did that go? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'd heard about it, you know, end of December, early January, just okay. on the news and stuff before I, before I came. So when I was in Colorado, I remember hearing it on the radio the first time and, and being like, well, that would be not so great if it got out. And then by the time I was leaving, end of January, people were telling me to, you know, as I was going there, they're like, oh, wear a mask and all these things. And at that time, we're just like, yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, so I mean, I heard about it just from being here in the States and then just following news and stuff. And when I got over there, not, not many people talked about it. It was kind of a joke at that point, early February, I would say. And yeah, I think really because I guess, well, China and Italy were so far ahead. And then, and then the U.S. was way ahead of Bangladesh. Even when it, things were starting to get pretty bad here in the U.S., I still was in like La La Land in Bangladesh. And I think, I mean, part of it is I'm, like at that point we were like, this was in March. We we're like, I know it's the, I know it's here. It's just, they don't have enough testing kits to test everyone. And we know there are a lot of foreigners that come in and out. And so our biggest fear was, you know, having these aid workers who were going in and out of the camps. Like they're the ones that are, you know, bringing it and maybe they're, they don't have any symptoms and they don't even know, uh, but they're bringing it to the camp. So that was my big fear. Uh, and I know that I was, ex- I'm always exposed to a lot of different foreigners traveling and stuff. But anyway, so it really only came to my attention when I had a phone call from my family and from my old boss from when I worked in Thailand. And they both were like, yeah, of course it doesn't seem bad right now, but things change every day. They change within 12 hours. And so 
we're a little bit ahead of Bangladesh, so you should try and get out <laughs> what, before you can. And so, yeah, so it, let me let me ask. That's okay. Let me ask you a question from uh, you know just from the last time we talked. If I if I got this right, you sensed that there was. I mean, you were talking about how there was how the the Rohingya people were thinking of the of the virus and their just their 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 attitudes toward it. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And that's actually one of the things that I'm working on right now remotely is just trying to create or trying to debunk these myths and false facts about about the coronavirus to the Rohingya people. So I'm I'm doing a lot of, you know, posters and graphics and we're getting into animations and stuff to teach them like, hey, these facts are not real. Don't listen to this. So one of the biggest issues is like I have the privilege of being able to, well, find somewhat credible news sources, but in the camps, they have very little access to internet. The little internet that they do have access to, usually it is like Facebook or WhatsApp. And so they hear a lot of crazy things (laughs) on these news sources. And so a couple, like there were like several reports are being released, you know, each week about the different false facts that people believe and and just a bunch of different research is conducted throughout the camps to see like what do these people know about the coronavirus and what are ways in which we can help them and some things that that were released were kind of scary like like well for one a lot of them are afraid to go to the doctor because they believe that if you go to the clinic you're going to die just from you know past experiences and, and and things like that and it's just based on you know fear lack of education and stuff so a lot of people believe that, you know, if they have coronavirus, they're not going to go to receive treatment. Another thing is, I read in one report, they believe that if you have coronavirus and you are killed, then your symptoms can go away, which is a pretty strong statement and kind of scary when, you know, if this is told from a person of authority. Another. So, so, so they're saying that if you personally have it, and then you're killed, then you lose, you no longer are symptomatic, which makes sense, right? It's not going to be hard to breathe if you're not breathing. Right, right, exactly. So it's a, All right. Yeah, and then, and then I think the other, so there, there are just a lot of things, a lot of them think that it, it's passed through mosquitoes, and so there's just like a lot of different false facts that are floating around the camps, but it's, it is difficult to try and, and t- teach them like, okay, you do need to receive treatment and and social distancing yeah. and, and all these different things. Yeah. Another issue that we are facing more, I, I faced it personally in the town where I was living, but I, I'm assuming people will face it in the camps as well, is that they believe, well, which is true, that foreigners are the ones that, that brought it to them. But the problem with that is now there's like a lot of animosity stemmed towards foreigners and especially international aid workers. I mean, even for me, I was walking down the street and some guys start yelling coronavirus at me and spitting at me because, I mean, for all they know, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> so I think, and, and I, as soon as I experienced that, that was the day before I left, I was, I can already see like, okay, this could actually get really bad. Virus aside, just the the animosity and the the fear and the anger that could rise up towards a specific people group. And so I was a little bit concerned about that. And even like 
security and stuff, they, they did make some announcements about foreigners being careful and staying inside to avoid any sort of bad situation. So. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. One of the, th you know, one of the things that our company studies is uh, we call it socionomics and it's this connection between various social manifestations when, when social mood and when aggregate mood turns negative. And one of the, the biggest, there, there are two that are pertinent here. One is that, you know, communities become more susceptible to diseases during those times. We've, it sounds bizarre, but we've seen that through historical studies. And also there is a culture's move from inclusion or inclusionism to exclusionism. And that's a really good example of that, of that phenomenon happening, you know, and it can get, it can get really extreme when it gets bad enough. So we're glad you got out of there. We're glad you got out of there safely. We're just about out of time here. I want to see if there's one more. Yeah. I, I'm sure it was difficult for you to go, Sophie, and I wanted to ask you this question, you know, if it was hard for you to grasp or to see or to accept that people that you, that you loved and, and were there to serve, you know, were beginning to shift in their understanding of who you are and beginning to, to, to treat you differently. I know you, you got out early in that process. Mm -hmm. Is yeah. that a thing that you, that you have to kind of uh, sort out or have you sorted out? I think like a lot of it, I guess, was, I know for them, it's, I know when they start to mistrust me in any way, it's because of, you know, fear of events that have happened to them in the past and fear that something like that is going to, you know, reoccur. Even things like, you know, some, some of them, if they thought that I was, you know, a journalist or anything, then they suddenly would just close off and stuff. But, you know, it's taken a lot of a lot of years of a relationship to share with them. Like, I'm not a journalist. I'm not trying to explore your story or anything like that. So the same kind of thing. Like, I just, I'm like, you know what? The situation affects everyone in different ways. I'm working now with the mental health department. So we're trying to, we're looking at different trends and stuff and, and, and ways in which, you know, people's mind, like the way they think and stuff during a pandemic. And, and so for me, I'm, I'm, I'm just like, you know, backing off and, it's not, I think it's just, it's just this big pandemic that is affecting everyone in different ways. And so I, yeah, I did feel like I was being treated a little bit differently. And I felt like, I don't know, out of respect for them and just an interesting situation to be in. But I think there are just so many unknowns with like this virus. And I stopped going to the camps earlier than most people just because I felt like, I didn't want to, I don't know, I didn't want any, any of my relationships to be ruined because of this situation. And, and I didn't want to, you know, if I was, say, carrying <laughs> said virus, I didn't want to be the one to be carrying that. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, but. yeah, it does. And it, 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 I think it, you know, I really admire your flexibility in this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you had to shift in your thinking about in, in many ways, in what you were doing and why you were there, or not necessarily why you were there, but what you were doing while you were there, and what could you do as a result of coming home. And so, you know, it's a good principle wherever we are in, in, in the business world. I think a lot of times, you know, a mark of entrepreneurship is not that you're trying to necessarily change your, your marketplace 
as much as you are trying to understand your marketplace and adapt yourself mm -hmm. to the marketplace. There are times, of course, that you can change your marketplace by breakthrough and innovation and stuff like that. But in this situation, what you've done is dropped back and said, okay, what do these guys need? What do they really mm -hmm. need at this time in history? And part of the answer was for you to get out. I mean, they needed yeah. for you to leave in order for you to be effective. And so now another way that you're changing is you're changing the, the, the topics that, you know, your books are covering and your, your, your educational materials are covering mm -hmm. as a result of all that. So that's, uh, that's admirable as well. Is there some good, I think some good takeaways. I think it's time to, to move to questions from the group. Sophie, I have a question for you. <laughs> yes. Okay. So we've been talking a lot about how the church is impacted here and like in American, at least a lot of circles I'm in, people are like revival, you know, and all of these things. I don't know how much you've talked to your Rohingya friends or, you know, the people still back in Bangladesh who are Muslim. They, do you think that this virus or outbreak is affecting their faith or like, how are they taking it from like a faith standpoint? Yes. Good question because I, I did not touch upon that yet. So yeah, it's, it's really hard to be in this position where we're trying to disseminate information like facts to these people about just about coronavirus and about how it, it is important to distance yourself and, and, you know, do all those things because for them, they have two beliefs. One is that all intended for all of this to happen. And so there's nothing we can do about it. And there's nothing that we should do because everything's out of our control. So that is one belief that they have. Another, and going along with that, they believe that, you know, now is a better time more than ever to, you know, have to come together and to pray and to pray for Allah and, and redemption for all of this. So, I mean, even the day after I left, there was a mass prayer gathering of like over 30,000 people in Dhaka. And I'm like, ah! <laughs> and so, yeah, the, and it's been that like the NGO world, we've been trying to, it's, it's such a fine line of being like, hey, we're not trying to, to be disrespectful to your religion or anything. We're, we're trying to tell you do not have mass gatherings, do not do this, do not do that, because you're just going to be spreading the virus. So it's been, it's been tricky to try and not, I don't know, try to stay sensitive to them and, and, and what they're believing. But yeah, so their religion has been, I mean, they always bring it, they will bring it back to religion and back to this is Allah's wish. And so yeah, that's been very interesting. Another thing is that I visited several, when I was doing my research for my book, I visited a couple of different witch doctors in the camps. And it seems like a lot of them don't trust the doctors as much or the clinics or the aid workers, and they would prefer to go to the witch doctor, uh, which I'm thinking if this pandemic, you know, if it gets really big in the camps, I think they would rather choose to go to the witch doctor who sees like, you know, a hundred patients a day. And so that, that's another thing that's, you know, directly correlating with religion and their beliefs. And especially during this pandemic, that could be a very big problem. <laughs> so, yeah. Sophie, has the virus gotten out in the camp yet? I imagine it's like you can't social distance. So what's that like there? Right. Good question. So the problem is we don't have many testing kits. 
I remember when I left, they're like, oh, we only have 72 cases in Bangladesh. I'm like, no, in a country of 160 million people, you definitely have more, but they just can't afford testing kits. Yeah. So there are several confirmed cases and a couple, I think one or two deaths in Cox's Bazaar, the town where I was living, which is about two, one to two hours outside of the camps. Yeah. The problem is most people who work in Cox's Bazaar or who live there work in the camps. I personally, <clears throat> I personally think that it is in the camps yeah. just because of the way people live and behavior and, and everything in, in um, that country is just impossible not to spread it. But we don't really know. There's nothing confirmed yet because no set tests have been um, confirmed. Yeah. Are more pe are people dying in the camps? Is there any way to like, track that or no when you're not there? I mean, of coronavirus, not no confirmed cases yet. Okay. So, I mean, but, you know, basic... Basic problems right now are, are a big issue. And, and luckily the, the refugees have more help than others in terms of like getting food during this time and stuff. Yeah. Um, a big issue actually right now that we're facing is like say the, the local town where I, where I was living in Cox's Bazaar, a lot of the, the workers like the fishermen and the rickshaw drivers and all these like jobs are, you know, they're in a lockdown. So they can't, they they can't eat if they're living off of a dollar a day as is they have no bank account or anything and a couple of rickshaw drivers actually my friend just told me that like he committed suicide because he couldn't find food and kind of was going a little bit crazy couldn't provide for his family so a lot of suicides have risen recently because of that because of fear anxiety and and really starvation that's why I started doing little fundraisers to just get some food out to these families because the lockdown has just extended to the end of April. So everyone thought that they were going to be fine right now and go back to work and stuff. Now that it's extended, a lot of these families are like, we literally haven't eaten since last Wednesday. And now that's outside of the camps, those who are not receiving aid from the UN. Hey, Sophie. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, so I have... Two things. First off, I mean, if you just want to like plug your fundraiser, I would do that because that's really cool. <laughs> but as well, like, what's your plan? Obviously, like, it's all up in the air, and like you said, like foreigners are not looked on as well now. What does going back look like? Like, what are you thinking about that now? Going back to Bangladesh? Or or... Possibility, right? Yeah, yeah. So right now, I'm actually really busy <laughs> with all of these, like producing, you know awareness information posters and animations and all this fun stuff so it's been i basically placed myself in a position where i was like all right this is actually good opportunity under the circumstances for books unbound to like come in and say hey we provide access to information and that's what we do we don't just make you know picture books for fun or for teaching english or anything and so that's actually been really good is I'm just starting to release these different things. And luckily I, I'm connected with a lot of organizations now. So we're, for me, I'm just trying to build up as much content and connect with as many organizations at this time and just saying, Hey, what do you guys need? We can help. So doing a lot of just like random pro bono work and stuff. And I'm think like, I'm thinking, you know, after all of this kind of subsides a little bit that, 
there will probably be projects where I can be part of to, yeah, I'm basically kind of like proving myself now in the, in the NGO world where they can see like, oh, okay, so this is what Books and Gone does. And so whenever they have projects, they can contact me. It's, it's nice to know I'm kind of more of the go-to now, like for creating contextualized cartoons. There, there aren't too many of them. So my plan right now is to, luckily I can do everything remotely. So I'm, I'm here back in the States, but I'm still like turning out like all different mediums of, of information for these NGOs. And then, yeah, I'm getting commissioned, pick, pick, picking up a bunch of random odd work here and there, like doing a couple more animation videos and all that stuff. I mean, I'd love to go back like September, October, it's just so hard to tell right now, but my plan would be to go back and, and do a couple more projects there. For sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Hey, Soph. So my question is seeing that you have all of this, like you're absorbing all of this information in order to translate that to the Rohingya people, um, seeing that you have all of this information and you have all of these relationships with all of these different families, how are you like processing like the impact that this is having on their families? Mm -hmm. Yeah, good question. <laughs> I know like when I left, it was, I left in such a rush. I was just like, oh my gosh, I, I need to make sure I can get a flight out of here like now. And, uh, and it was one of those things like, remember I, I called Mary, I'm like, look, at the airport seeing all these flights getting canceled and I'm like oh I might not make it out so for me I, I didn't really process anything I, I I mean you know I always thought I mean I did think worst case scenario and everything and then I would quickly like brush that out of my mind uh, for me yeah I am very worried about these families who I already know a lot of like the parents are elderly and they're already sick with all the diseases that you don't want. And when you get, you know, coronavirus, like asthma, hepatitis, diabetes, mm -hmm. all these things. I've been in contact with the family state side. And so just kind of talking them through it. I think, I mean, at this point, I've, I've kind of just been like, it's, it's really out of my control. And I guess the best thing we can do right now is pray and and try to try to release as much information to them as possible. But yeah, it does scare me a lot to to know, like, I mean, they've been through so much and now going through this and their situation's like 10 times worse than my situation. So it is hard to be sitting here knowing that. But yeah, it's, <laughs> it's kind of scary, but yeah, I'm just kind of trying to, stay in contact with the families here and just let them know that I'm here if they need me and yeah. Is that everything from our students? Mark, you have anything else? Nothing else from me, Sophie. It's always, you know, an honor and a pleasure just to be able to hang out with you a little bit. Well, I guess I do have one observation. When we finished the interview and your fellow Global U people came on, you changed. <laughs> it was really it was really cool to see but i hope you guys can get together and hug on each other i think that's yeah. gonna be a lot really good for everybody if you can do that so yeah. thank you 
Sophie for agreeing to do this and thank you Jacob for setting it up and thank you Global U for being you guys. You guys are amazing. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> Thanks Jacob. See you guys later. Thank you Mr. Yes, Mark. You. It was so good right. to hear from you. Okay, you guys too. <laughs> Bye you guys. Thank you for listening to another episode of Global U Talks. If you enjoyed this episode or think a friend might enjoy it, go ahead and share it with them. Also, be sure to drop a review or hit the like button on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, or your favorite listening app. It goes a long way to help us out. And if you're interested in reading the transcript, head on over to theglobalu.org talks, where you will find the transcript of every episode, as well as the opportunity to join in on the conversation live. You can join our live episodes every Tuesday and Thursday at 9 a.m. Eastern. You'll be able to ask questions, meet the community, and talk with the host. I hope to see you there.